0: My dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and class members, those who were with us at the last class will recall that we looked rather intently into the first four verses of this chapter, and we considered the background to it, and we were reminded again that the seven major military campaigns by which David subdued the Gentile nations typify the seven thunders of the Apocalypse wherein in seven major military campaigns, the Lord Jesus Christ will subdue the nations and establish the kingdom of God in peace. And upon that basis, we saw that the war that Joab and the army of Israel were undertaking at this time was not merely a matter of war against another nation. It typified the warfare of faith. And therefore we were able to see that David's duty at this time was to be with his men, with his brethren in the Ecclesia. He should have been at the head of the army in the warfare of faith. But he had decided to take some time off and to relax a little and probably give himself over to some thoughts. And in doing so, he found himself trapped in a situation in which although he was to find forgiveness at the hand of Yahweh for his monstrous sins in regard to this matter, yet the effect of what he did at this time remained with him and with his family and with the nation for the rest of his life. It is one thing to say that we can be forgiven for sins But so often when we sin, particularly in something of great consequence that involves others, it is not only a question of whether we ourselves are forgiven for our sin, but it is a question of considering the trouble, the strife, the hurt, the anguish and the other sins that may lead from our own initial foolishness. And so with the army away, Joab away, Uriah, one of the most wonderful of David's servants, away also fighting the warfare of faith. And David taking his ease with the wife of Uriah. And in the fifth verse of this chapter which we come to tonight, we come to the point where David finds that he is now totally, totally, utterly, irretrievably trapped. His sin has not simply been a sin against Yahweh and against Uriah. His sin has consequences as all sins do. And they're summed up in the phrase that the woman conceived and sent and told David and said four words in our version. I am with child. Her husband had been absent from home for some time. There was no way she could hide her sin. David was caught and the penalty for his sin and hers is set down in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 they shall surely be put to death. So David is now in a state of panic. And you know, brethren and sisters, so often when we panic at something wrong that we have done, the fleshly mind takes control. David had already given in to the dictates of the flesh in regard to Bathsheba. But now he finds himself as we make our way through this chapter, more and more deeply under the control of the mind of the flesh. With this announcement, I am with child. David's anxiety knows no bounds. He was filled with fear, but he did not humble himself before Yahweh. Had he done that now at this point no doubt he would have suffered for his sin but not as much as he ultimately suffered and brought suffering upon others as well because he failed to acknowledge his sin in humility before Yahweh. What a tremendous lesson there is for all of us in this situation that David now finds himself totally entrapped in We know that the only course for a godly man or a godly woman in any circumstances where they have been guilty of evil in the eyes of Yahweh is that set down in the first epistle of John chapter 1 and verse 9 to which our brother Simeon has already referred us. If If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no doubt Bathsheba sent and told David, as the words tell us here, in the hope that he would be able to shield her in some way. But what could he do? What was there that he could do, apart, that is, from seeking Yahweh. that his mind wasn't working that way. In his own mind, in his troubled, panic-stricken, anxious mind, there appeared nothing that he could do. Nothing. And then he got an inspirational thought that came straight from the flesh straight from the carnal mind in verse 6 David sent to Joab saying send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David now this was a thought if he could get Uriah home if he could get Uriah to go to his wife after a long absence then the conception of the child could be explained away and David would be off the hook. Would he? Would he? Even if that had worked, would he? Of course, we all know the answer to that because he is trying to hide his sin. He is trying to hide Bathsheba's sin. And there is no profit in that. So we have an example here of the mind of a desperate man at work. The fleshly mind of a desperate man. And seeking a fleshly way out of his problem. And if we just think for a moment, even if such a deceitful action as this had succeeded, Would it in any way have minimised David's sins? And we all know the answer to that. It was the mind of flesh that was at work. And yet Yahweh was there. The presence of Yahweh in David's life was something that he very rarely lost sight of. And this is one of those times. And what we are to learn from that, brethren and sisters, is that we have to learn to walk with God in the sense that we have His presence with us. We are aware of Him overseeing and overwatching our lives. And we are aware of that all the time. When that goes away and we give over our minds to the control of the flesh, then we are virtually saying in our own mind, Yahweh is not here. Yahweh is not here. So David now tried to cover his sin. But this led him into a further terrible sin. Sins plural we should say because of the way in which this chapter unfolds but the ultimate dreadful sin was that of murder that came out of all of this. And again we would say that Had he at this point uncovered his sin to Yahweh, then events wouldn't have got so out of hand as they did. And so many other people would not have been hurt. So many other lives would not have been lost. Because as we need to remember, there was more than the life of Uriah. There were the other men that died with him, fighting in a place where they should not have been fighting at all. Fighting in a place which meant certain death, not tactical warfare at all, but the throwing away needlessly of men's lives who were faithful servants of Yahweh. That's where sin can take us. Start off with something. Try to cover it with something else. Try to cover that then with something else. And one thing leads to another, to another, to another, to another, and where does it finish? so that ultimately David was to face up to the folly of his warped thinking at this time. You know, Psalm 32, written concerning these terrible events, after he has had to face up to the reality of them, and the horrifying reality of what he had done, particularly in offending Yahweh. And verse 1 of that Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What does it mean? It really means that only Yahweh can cover sin. No one else can do it. We certainly can't do it for ourselves. At the very beginning of time, at the dawn of history, we know from the early passages in Genesis, that Adam and Eve made fig leaf devices and tried to cover their sin, doesn't work. It never works. It will never work for anyone. So if we want our sins forgiven, we have to lay them bare before Yahweh so that he can cover them if his mercy is extended to us. And here before us in these verses we have a classic example of the progression of sin toward greater evil. Because if sin is not uncovered and confessed, then inevitably it will lead to greater evil. One sin will lead to another if the first is not repudiated. And we can imagine David under these circumstances, after he has received this message... I am with child. You can imagine, during this time, the many sleepless nights that he would have experienced. Twisting and turning. His mind racing from one thing to another. But all the time, his mind dominated by the thinking of the flesh. It is incredible to realise that David went through such agony without turning to Yahweh, not once, until he was faced with his crime. And you know, that shows us, should show us, the horror of the dreadful power that resides in flesh for evil. No wonder Paul said, in me, dwells no good thing. And no wonder the Lord Jesus Christ said, the flesh profiteth nothing, nothing. There is dreadful power for evil within the flesh. A power to draw us away from Yahweh and the only antidote to that, the only defence against it, is the shield of a spiritual mind. And we all know that. We all know where we fail to exercise that. And so the natural bias of the flesh against the things of the spirit is demonstrated in this chapter very, very dreadfully and fearfully. Once our thinking becomes dominated by the thinking of the flesh, then it's very very frightfully difficult to break out of a situation like that. We're reminded of Isaiah 57 and verse 20 that the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. And David here was like the troubled sea when it cannot rest because he was in a state of wickedness. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Could David rest? He could find no rest as he tells us in Psalm 32. So you see, there are tremendous things to be learned from these things, are there not? There is the restlessness of fear arising out of guilt when Yahweh has not been sought. When we are trusting only upon ourselves and we are saying, we've made a frightful blunder. We've done something really frightful here. How are we going to get out of it? What are we going to do to get out of this? And of course there's nothing we can do. There's only one who can do anything and that's Yahweh. So we're reminded of Proverbs 28 and verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, as we've had it read to us tonight. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall find or have mercy. So in striving to cover his sin, it seems that whilst David was trying to cover himself in the eyes of men... He had completely forgotten that God sees everything and that he needed not to be covered in the eyes of men. He needed a covering from the only one who could supply it. his God. How could he forget that? Easily. Easily. No problem. Just give the flesh free reign and that will be the result. It's not hard. Very easily done. As in the Garden of Eden, as we've mentioned, Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin by sewing fig leaves together. David, in effect, tried to do the same thing here. He endeavoured to create a situation in which, in effect, he tried to make himself appear innocent. He was going to use Uriah He was going to make use of Uriah as a covering for his sin. You've only got to think about it for a moment to see how utterly stupid it was. How groundless in wisdom or even basic logic. And yet that's what happens when the mind of the flesh goes to work. Don't worry about it. Everything will be alright. We can fix this up. So David was going to blot out his own sin. So at this time he's thinking only of himself. He's not thinking of the woman whom he has misused. He is not thinking of the husband of that woman whom he has betrayed. And above all else, he is not thinking of the God in heaven whom he has offended. So Uriah comes... And in verse 7 when Uriah was come unto him David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. Lovely small talk. Buttering up Uriah with a kind of what we call today small talk. Pleasantries. Before getting to the point David's mind was not on Joab. David's mind was not on the war. He was obsessed with the sneer he had around his own neck. So his prelude chit-chap chat is not even really honest. There's something else for David to consider later on when he's got to face the whole of this issue. And so in verse 8, David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house And there followed him a mess of meat from the king. David wanted to get Uriah back with his wife. And he was very, very persuasive. You've done an outstanding job, my friend. You deserve a brief respite. And here am I, the king, offering you this interlude at home. Just a day or two, that's all. Whatever you like, whatever suits you. So how subtly does David here play the role of serpent? You can see more clearly now what we mentioned earlier. Just one sin leads to another. That leads to something else and so on. But our mind is not controlled and ruled by the spirit word and an awareness of the nearness of almighty God how subtly did David play upon the mind of Uriah, exactly as the serpent played on the mind of the woman in the garden of Eden? thou shalt not surely die, God doesn't really mean what he says, you should know that. But David's subtlety and his serpent speech had no effect. Because you see, while David is fighting with the flesh under the control of the Mind of the flesh. Uriah is more devoted to the cause of the truth than David is. Uriah would not be corrupted. Not that he knew that he was being corrupted. But you see, he's remaining faithful and honest to what he believed was right. And he was right in a remarkable way. You cannot really expect the normal man to take the attitude that Uriah did take. Anyone could have quite rightfully and, and justly under those circumstances have said, well, what David says is okay, it's, it's, quite, it's quite reasonable. After all, I've been away, I've hardly had any sleep for weeks and weeks on end. The battle has been very difficult, it's been a trying time. Perhaps if I had a day or two off, I might even be stronger physically and mentally to go back and face the enemy more. Why not? But not Uriah. But he does depart out of the king's house, as verse 8 says, much to David's relief. And David now applies another subtle piece of reasoning putting pressure upon Uriah, because there followed him a mess of meat from the king. The Jerusalem Bible renders it, and was followed by a present from the king's table. Literally, the phrase means a royal present. Obviously, it relates to food and drink and so forth. And what a lavish present it would have been. And what an appeal to Uriah's ego and his sentiment. Go home. Celebrate your reunion with your wife. David certainly tried. But Uriah could not be deterred from his faithfulness. Just consider, when he arrived back in the city, he did not even go home first. Which was not very far away anyway. He didn't even go home first. Here he is back in the city... He is tired, travel-stained, and he goes first to report to his king. The first thing. And even after this, David still couldn't get him to go home. It shows you what a great man Uriah was, doesn't it? He was indeed a very great man in the faith. And so verse 9 tells us that Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. You see, this man was more concerned to identify himself with his brethren in the warfare of faith than he was with seeking his own relaxation and pleasure and self-gratification. What a remarkable exhortation there is in the life of this wonderful, wonderful man. He went not down to his house. And can you imagine David's anguish and frustration at all of this? So they told David, verse 10, when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house. David said unto Uriah, no doubt calling him back in, Camest thou not from thy journey, why then didst thou not go down under thy house? The Jerusalem Bible renders it: "Have you not just arrived from a journey? Why do you not go to your home? Pressure, pressure, pressure on uriah, but of a very subtle kind. Go ahead, go on. I'm giving you permission. It's all right job and the army can manage without you for a day or two was almost like a commandment from the king wasn't it go home I didn't go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth I will not do this thing what a reply wasn't it possible that that could have shamed David to a realisation of where he actually stood. Not only in the eyes of Israel, not only in the eyes of the army, not only in the eyes of Uriah, but in the eyes of Yahweh. What a reply to David. You see, what Uriah is saying is that his heart was with Yahweh's presence In the midst of the warring encampment of Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. That's where I belong, he says. It was where David belonged. And if David had been there, this would never have happened. This is where Uriah wished to be and he stated his feelings boldly to the king and having been sent home by Joab on this weird journey, on this strange errand to inform the king as to the progression of the war. Anybody could have been sent. Not one of the 37 bravest and most courageous warriors that David had. A young lad could have been sent. Anybody could have been sent. No doubt, all the way back to the city, eyes thinking, well, why, would, why on earth have I got this job? Why send me? I belong in the, with the fighting men. He had delivered his information. He had told David how the war was progressing. And now he wished to be off. He wanted to be gone. To join his brethren in the warfare of faith. And so now David is even more desperate. In verse 12, stay here one more day. I'll let you go tomorrow. And then in verse 13, we have David's ultimate degradation. When David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. almost impossible to believe that David would be capable of anything like that. But when the flesh is desperate the flesh will do desperate things without thought for what is godly and without thought of the ultimate consequences. David was adding sin to sin and he was not finished yet to try to cover his own iniquity, he degraded a brave and loyal friend in what he does here to Uriah the flesh does not play by a set of rules never has since sin entered into the world and it never will There are no rules so far as sin is concerned. It is simply a fact of I want and if anybody gets in the road that's just too bad. Because I want what I want and I will get what I want. David did this to a brave and a loyal friend. But still we read in verse 13, he went not down to his house. For the second night, David was frustrated. And on both nights, here is an interesting sideline, on both nights there were witnesses to testify that Uriah had not gone home to his wife. there was no way that David could even fabricate anything out of this. No way at all. What's he going to do now? Verse 14 It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Jaiab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So his senses reeling now more than ever in fear and panic there was only one thing left for the king to do. So he thought, and that was dispose of Uriah. Dispose of Uriah. What a chilling, cold-blooded decision that was to make. It shows you really that David was in spiritual terms, in a state of madness, really. And you know, often we have thought over the years that with the passing of time and David being aware of the fact that he had received the forgiveness of Yahweh but nevertheless the troubles mounted within his family and so forth as we've seen before. And we'll see it again, God willing. Yet, for all of that, he is in a situation here where it's impossible to accept a man of David's spiritual qualities descending to these depths. Though we know why. In effect a state of madness. No control over the spiritual mind at this stage. Too dominated by how can I get out of this? What can I do to save this appalling situation? Dispose of Uriah. And in that faith faithful letter David signed away his independence he signed away his independence as the king over Israel and surrendered himself to the unscrupulous Joab who he now makes his companion in crime one foolish thing after another And he wrote in the letter verse 15 saying Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him leave him out on a limb that he may be smitten and die and it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were and the men of the city went out and fought with Joab and there fell some of the people of the servants of David And Uriah the Hittite died also. Notice that David does not give Joab any hint as to the reason for demanding this action. All Joab was to know upon receipt of the letter was that Uriah had in some way incurred the king's displeasure. And of course David, knowing the character of Joab, it seems likely that he would ask Uriah a few apt questions. You can imagine on reading this letter, Joab would have had a conversation with Uriah and starting putting two and two together and getting four. And that's something that Joab was very good at. He was a very good thinker. The tragedy was that most of the time he did not use his mind to think on the right things. But he was a very smart fellow. And he would had a few questions to ask Uriah which would have started a glimmer of light in the mind of Jaya. Can you imagine Uriah saying, you know, I don't quite understand it but you know, he kept on telling me to go home. He did it the first night I was there and then when I didn't go he, I just stayed with the servants outside the king's door and then he called me in the next day and the next day he still tried to get me to go home and see my wife. Now I didn't want to go home and see my wife. I wanted to be back here with the army and so forth. Joab's mind ticking over. Why did he want him to go home to see his wife? Why was it so important? Two nights he was there? Two nights? Every night pressuring him to go home and see his wife? What's going on? Joab knew, I'm sure of it. He came to the conclusion as to what had happened. But when he gets this instruction, put Uriah in the hottest battle, in the forefront of the battle. When he reads that, should he not have withdrawn in horror at the very idea of such cold-blooded infamy? Of course he should have. And if he had had anything of the truth working in him, he would have done so. But he didn't. He didn't. In other words, Joab was just the fellow to implicate in a crime such as this. He was just the man for the job. We'll be reminded of that in a little while. Joab was no fool. We know that much. And it seems from verse 19, 20 and 21 that really he realised that David was up to something sinister. And it was something that eventually, not now, but eventually, Joab would be able to turn to his own advantage. Which, of course, he did, ultimately. So Joab is thinking not only of David and the commandment that he's given, which he carries out with cold-blooded, merciless ruthlessness, But he's also working on the thought of, ultimately, I can make something out of this for me. He would secure a greater hold over the king through this evil business. And so the gentle art of blackmail was not beyond Joab's capacity to practice with ruthless self-interest. And you know, you might remember the way in which when we studied uh, Saul, when he wished to slaughter the priests. Remember how appalled Saul's own men were at such a prospect. They wouldn't do it. They stepped back. They were in a similar position. Those men of Saul, they were in a similar position as to that which Joab is in now. Saul's men, when it came to slaughtering the priests, they wouldn't do it. They stepped away from it. But then, up stepped Doeg the Edomite. And immediately there was a mutual sympathy between Saul and Doeg. Doeg says to Saul, You want know all these men butchered? Saul says, Yes. Right, he says, I'll do it. Why did he do it? Because he and Saul were two of a kind in so many respects. Now, Come back just a few chapters, keeping a hand in chapter 11. Come back with me to chapter, thir- chapter 3 of the 2nd of Samuel. Here is David. Look at this. Here is the chapter wherein Joab killed Adna. But we should always remember that his brother was involved in this as well. In verse 30 we read of Joab and Abishai. Remember there were three brothers, Joab, Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel had been killed by Adnah. Something that Abner had not wanted to do. He did everything to try and get Asahel to turn away. He said, I don't want to kill you. I don't want to do you any harm. Turn away and run away. But Asahel was so brave and young and zealous, not thinking as clearly as perhaps he should have done, and ended in his death. Joab said, I'm going to get him for that. When really it was was a matter of self-defence in the case of Abner at that time. But what do we find here? When they bury Abner. David is shocked. He's heartbroken. He's stressed beyond measure. And what does he say at the end of this? Look at verse 39. I am this day weak. Notice the margin? Tender. I am this day weak and tender, though appointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, be too hard for me David couldn't take that. They're too hard for me after what they'd cold-bloodedly done to Abner without just cause. They're too hard for me. Now in chapter 11, David has become one of them. But look at the end of verse 39. These sons of Zeruiah be too hard for me. Yahweh shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Those words would have come home to haunt David. To haunt him. So what happens here then? The cruel, heartless Joab became a willing accessory to David's wickedness. David's way of thinking is now in harmony with that of Joab, whose actions of a similar nature David had previously condemned. David and Joab, accomplices in crime. Who could have ever believed such a thing? So that the deeper David went into sin, the more his moral sensibilities became deadened. The more sin took over, the more vague and faint and distant the principles of the truth were until ultimately David is in a state here where the truth is out of sight. The word of God has gone from his mind. And so as David goes deeper and deeper into sin, we see this incredible situation that Uriah carried this letter with him to Joab, which was his own death warrant his own death sentence and so verse 16 tells us that Joab assigned Uriah unto a place and we've read that verse and seen what that place was and how that it was a hopeless situation put in the midst of a battle against some of the greatest soldiers military personnel on the part of the adversaries, the enemy in the warfare of faith and then abandoned David says, put him there with a few other men, whatever, and then draw back and leave him there. And Joab obeys this without a qualm. His conscience was not in the least disturbed disturbed by it. He saw it as an order to be carried out and he saw it as something eventually to his own uh, advantage. There was no time for any quick twinge of conscience. And what did Joab think of the law? In Deuteronomy chapter 19, And at verse 10 we are familiar with these words where Yahweh says that innocent blood be not shed in thy land which Yahweh thy Elohim giveth thee for an inheritance and so blood be upon thee. David was the only one of the two who had his sin forgiven because basically he had been from a young man a man after God's own heart. God could find In himself to forgive David, but not Joab. Not Joab. Joab paid the price of Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10. And so with that in mind, we find that verse 17 tells us that there fell of the servants of David a number of innocent men also who should not have been where they were. And Uriah, the Hittite, died. Uriah, the Hittite, died. Now, David can rest peacefully. Can he? We know what happened to David. We know what happened to David in regard to this whole matter and how that he tried for months and months to hide this sin. But eventually it came out, didn't it? In four words, Thou art the man. And God willing, at our first class for next year, we'll take up the narrative from this point. With the death of the innocent Uriah, and David left now to contemplate the circumstances that he has created and to bear the consequences of his crime.